So to me, uh, pottery is one of the most intriguing art forms. I don't know about you guys. Maybe it's because I tried it once and the outcome was terrible. That might be why. Um, But if you think about pottery, it's really a, a simple art form that's been around for thousands of years. And even though it's ancient, it really hasn't changed much in its basic form. It involves an artist, an artisan, a a potter, taking clay, putting it on a table, a potter's wheel, and using water and instruments to form, and, and hands to form something that is both useful and beautiful. So you have in your house um, dishes that are made. Maybe if you're, you know, really fancy, you have some handmade pottery. And it's useful for things. Maybe you use it as you serve dinner guests. But it's also beautiful. It's a, a work of art, right? And so as we consider this, the idea of pottery and a potter, it's really not surprising that as we look to the Bible, we see the authors of Scripture, God himself, using this as a timeless metaphor for how God works with his people. Consider with me for a moment Isaiah 64, verse 8. But now, O Lord, you are Father. You are our Father. We are the clay, and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hands. So Isaiah acknowledges that God is the sovereign one who is in charge of his people and he works in such a way as a loving father to form his children. Or or here, Jeremiah 18, 6, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as the potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. God is through the prophet Jeremiah emphasizing to his people really in a gentle rebuke, just to remind you, God says, I'm the one who's in charge of your life. I'm the potter, you are the clay. Or consider Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Not a specific reference to a potter and clay, but listen to what the Apostle Paul says about our salvation. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be what? Conformed into the image of of his son. So when we put all those things together, what do we see when we come to scripture? God, the loving father, is like a potter who takes that lump of clay, puts it on the potter's wheel, and forms something that is both useful and beautiful. He conforms us into the image of son so that we would be of his son, that we would be like Jesus Christ. Maybe as you hear that and you've been with us as we walk through Genesis, you can see this in the life of Jacob, right? You see his ups and downs. You see that he is both a sinner and a sufferer. He makes major mistakes and sins against others, but he has also been sinned against. But what we've seen and what we'll continue to see this morning in these two chapters is that through all of that, God is the potter forming this lump of clay. 
And what we see this morning in these two chapters is really three specific ways God does that. We're looking at three different scenes here in these two chapters. And these are surprising ways that God shapes both Jacob and us as well as we look at these three scenes. And so here's what we're going to see. First, one surprising way God shapes us is by confronting our fear. We see that in verses 1 through 21 of chapter 32, as Jacob anticipates meeting Esau. We see, secondly, that God shapes us by revealing our weakness. We see that in the second half of chapter 32, as Jacob wrestles with God. And then third and finally, we see that God shapes us through relational conflict. And we see that as Jacob is reunited with Esau. And the the reason I say these are surprising ways that God shapes us is because all three of those things are things that you and I wouldn't normally run to, right? We wouldn't say, you know what, I'm really looking forward to confronting my fears. Not in a fear factor way, like, you know, let tarantulas crawl on you or anything like that, but the big fears of life. We tend to go the other way. Or we don't say, you know what, really, what I really love is learning about how weak and cripple I am spiritually. That just gets me going in the morning. Or you know what, and some of you might be like this, and we'll talk later. Most of us, though, aren't like, you know what I love? I love me some relational conflict, right? But... These are surprising ways that God sovereignly uses to shape us as images into the image of his son, Jesus. And so let's jump in and see the first one. First, we'll see that God shapes us through confronting our fear. And he does this with Jacob. Now, before we read the first couple verses there, just by way of reminder, here's the setting. Jacob is leaving. He has fled from Laban. If you remember, he's been essentially captive there for the last 20 years. He's been tricked and deceived by by Laban, but God has called Jacob now to move on. He has fled. We saw that last week. And he's leaving and headed back to the promised land. He's going back to his father's household specifically. He's meant to go back to Bethel, which is where he was in chapter 28 when he met God. As he was leaving the promised land to run away from Esau who wanted to kill him. So he's leaving and you might think he has a sort of has a pep in his step. He's, he's, he's finally free. He's going back home. But in reality what he's doing is he's leaving one danger and he's headed into another. Because the last time he was in his father's land, the last time he was with his family, the last words he heard from his brother Esau was, I am going to murder my brother Jacob because he's stolen the blessing from me. So he's going back, and that's good news. He's being obedient to God. Just a side note, sometimes being obedient to God doesn't mean going away from danger, but means actually going into danger. And he's expecting this being reunited with his brother Esau. And as he considers that, there is fear that's welling up in him. But before he even confesses that, look what we read in verse 1 and 2. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. So what's happening here? These two verses that explain something that's, that's going on as Jacob's about to enter into a very fearful, dangerous situation. 
And as that takes place, what does God do? God, in his grace and mercy, appears to Jacob in the form of angels. He sends his messengers. And the message is very simple. The same word for angels used here was the same word used back in chapter 28 when Jacob saw this vision of angels ascending and descending from heaven. And the message is very simple. God is reassuring Jacob of his presence with him. He is saying, just so you know, I know you're about to face something fearful, but I am with you. You see, Jacob, like all of us, he's, he can be tempted to, to think you're alone as you face the dangers and struggles of life, right? He knows God's with him, but he also knows his brother wants to kill him. So God, in his grace, sends these angels. And here's what, what Jacob says. He calls the place Mahanaim, which means two camps. And this is actually military-type language. It's as if Jacob's saying, I'm not going into this battle alone. It's not just me. I also have this other camp of God's soldiers, God's presence with me as I go into the battle. I grew up in California, and uh, we were not far from Disneyland. Anybody been to Disneyland or Disney World? Okay, just want to know. Okay, by far the greatest ride, and I don't want to argue with you because I'm right and you're wrong. The greatest ride in both of those places is Space Mountain, right? I got a woo, any Space Mountain? Who's, who's been on Space Mountain before? Okay, here's what makes Space Mountain so uh, exciting. You're, you're, in com- you're inside, and it's completely pitch black dark, right? That's kind of the, the fear factor of it. It's thrilling, but it's also a bit terrifying because you're thinking, especially if you're really tall, shout out Phil, right? You're going through this thing and you're like, I'm having fun, but am I going to hit my head on something? If I raise my hands, am I going to lose them? Because it's completely dark. But here, here's what's, what's incredible, and I hope this happens in my lifetime. There are a few people who have had the opportunity to ride Space Mountain with the lights on. And what, what a difference does that make? I think it would be exciting, but it also, it eliminates the fear factor, doesn't it? Because you're still going fast, you're still going forward, but you can see what's coming. And so this is, in essence, these, these angels that show up in these two short verses, this is, in essence, God flipping the lights on for Jacob so he can see what's coming. So he can know, as I march into my fears, as I face my brother Esau, I know God is with me. God is present with me. He reassures him of his presence. Now, you might be like me, and you read that, and you think, my faith would be a lot stronger if I woke up tomorrow and two angels were just hanging out in my living room, right? Just putting their arms around me, whatever they look like. Apparently, they're pretty terrifying, but swords, wings, whatever, and saying, just just so you know, God is with you, right? We'd probably look at tomorrow differently if if we did that, right? But here's what's so encouraging for those of us who are in Christ on this side of the cross. Because of Jesus, this is a promise for us as well. The presence of God continually with us is a promise, not a maybe, a promise of the gospel. Psalm 34, 7 says, the angel of the Lord encamps around who? Those who fear him. Those who trust the Lord. Or if you fast forward even more to the life and ministry of Jesus, in John chapter 16, as Jesus is talking to his sorrowful, anxious, fearful disciples before he's going to go to the cross and rise from the grave and ascend into heaven, 
He says in John 16, 7, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, that's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. See, because of Christ, we who believe in him, not only are we saved from our sins, not only are we promised eternity, but we are filled with the very presence of God and the Holy Spirit constantly with us to remind us that as we face our fears, whatever they may be, we don't face them alone. Now, friends, how do, you, how do we cultivate that in our life? Well, I think one way is to prayerfully be aware of the Spirit's work, but another way is to remember that what we hold in our hands when we read and study and preach this book is not just an ancient text, it's God's very word to us today. It's God speaking to us and saying, I am here with you. You are not going at this alone. So first, Jacob is reassured by God's presence as he confronts his fear. And then as we read on in verse 3, we hear a little more of the specifics of his fear. Verse 3 says, And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. Verse 6, And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. Now, I read this and I'm like, did, were the messengers just not good at their job? Maybe they didn't relay the whole message. Because if you're Esau, or if you're Jacob, you hear that, and what do you think? He is coming with an army to destroy me, right? You know that's not what happens later, we'll see. But you can understand why, why he is fearful. So his response is, I'm greatly afraid, not just afraid, but also I'm distressed at the thought of this. Now, why is he afraid? We mentioned already that he had already been at odds with his brother Esau. And he's really fearful because of two things. First, guilt because of his past sin against his brother. If you remember, what he did is he cheated his brother not once but twice. First, while Esau, when they were younger, was coming in, he was famished and hungry after working in the field. Instead of giving him food and drink, what did Jacob do? He sold him a bowl of stew in exchange for his birthright, the promise of blessing. Then later on, Jacob teamed up with his mom and disguised himself as his brother Esau and tricked his blind, nearly dead father into blessing Jacob instead of Esau. And now, Jacob, who has been slowly formed on that potter's wheel, realizes that he sinned greatly against his brother. So he goes into this situation carrying guilt. And then there is also the uncertainty. It's been around 20 years. He has no idea what's been going on with Esau. He has no idea how he is going to respond. So he hears, your brother's coming with 400 men and he expects battle. Now, what does he do in response to this? He does two things, and this is so instructive to us when we consider the fears of our lives. First, he plans 
and then he prays. Notice his planning. Verse 7, immediately, then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and the camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. So he's just thinking, I want to avoid the worst case scenario here. So he divides his family into two. But then he goes even further. If you look down at verse 13, he goes on to prepare a gift To appease his brother. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a hundred female, or he took a present for his brother Esau 200 female goats, and 20 male goats, and 200 ewes, and 20 rams, 30 milking camels, and their calves, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and he said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. And he instructed the first, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, To whom do you belong? Where are they going? And those are, and whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They're a present for my Lord Esau. And he goes on and does it again two more times. Now, what's, what's he doing here? First, we note humility in Jacob. Notice he's giving this gift of tribute. The word in the ESV is present, but really the language there is this formal, ancient um, practice of giving a tribute to someone who is far superior to you. Think of a servant giving a gift to a king. And all these animals, you're like, what in the world is all about that all about, Right? It's, it's essentially his money. He's breaking out the checkbook. And some people say, well, he's trying to pay for forgiveness here. I don't think that's what's happening. I think this is a sign of Jacob's former conniving, strategic thinking that he used for self-centeredness. God is now redeeming it. And he, it's redeemed planning as he prepares to meet his brother. But notice also, he doesn't just send this gift. Notice his language of humility. He calls Esau his Lord. Not Lord, capital L as in God, but Master, one whom he is to serve. He seeks to find favor with him, verse 5. He calls himself your servant Jacob. He, he really longs to be reunited with his brother, even though, he know, even though he knows he's messed up in the past. So he plans in this way, but he doesn't just plan... He doesn't just resort to his own strategic thinking. He also prays. Look at verses 9 through 12. Side note, this is the longest recorded prayer in the book of Genesis. It's very instructive to us. What he prays here is essentially four things. First, he acknowledges God's past faithfulness. Look at verse 9. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham... And God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. In the second half of verse 10, he says, he acknowledges all the faithfulness you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed the Jordan, and now I have become two camps. So he starts by acknowledging God's past faithfulness in his life. He says, the only reason I'm here, the only reason I'm alive, the only reason I'm blessed, God, is because you are faithful. He doesn't start by making a request. He starts with worship. And then, notice in verse 10, 
Second thing he prays, he acknowledges his own unworthiness. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown me. God, you have blessed me richly, but I acknowledge that I am not worthy of any of it. When was the last time you, you prayed like that? This is very countercultural for, uh, for us. When was the last time you stood before God and acknowledged that you, in and of yourself, have no worth, you deserve no grace from God, you only deserve judgment, but he has been faithful and good to you. Later on, Lord willing, we'll sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. We don't use that language anymore. That's kind of heavy-handed, right? Can you, can you really call yourself a wretch? Well, do you know how John Newton came to the place of recognizing that? It's because before God rescued him, he was a slave ship captain and lived a life of complete and total wickedness against God and man. And God redeemed him. And he was well aware that he was unworthy of God's grace. That's what made it so amazing to him. And friends, before, before we ask God to deliver us from our dangers, we must first begin by acknowledging his past and present faithfulness to us and our complete and total unworthiness of it. So he prays. You're faithful, God. I'm unworthy. But then he asks for deliverance. Look at verse 11. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. For I fear him that he may come and attack me and the mothers with the children. So he asks a very specific prayer. Deliver me from this impending doom that I'm fearful of. And then, third and finally, he asks God to fulfill his promises to him. In verse 12, he says, You said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for the multitude. Do you know what he's doing here? He is praying God's word back to him. And friends, let me just encourage you for a moment. If you find that your prayer life is stifled, maybe it's weak, you feel it's rote, and you're praying the same things over and over and over again, one of the greatest things you can do and that we should do as Christians, is pray the word of God back to him. Do you notice this is a bold prayer? God, deliver me because you said God. He's not being arrogant, but he's humbly pleading the promises of God. You said that you will make your offspring as great as the sand of the sea. He's praying God's word back to him. So, as he faces his fear, he plans and he prays as he's reassured of God's presence. Now as you consider your own life, we should ask ourselves this morning, what is it that we fear right now? What is something in your life that tempts to to cripple you with fear? Maybe it's you thinking about the the future of your career, it seems unstable. Maybe it's a, a relationship and there is people who are at, at odds with, with one another. Or, or maybe as you look at your own spiritual life, you're, you're in a, a dark night of the soul. You feel spiritually dry and you're wondering, how do I get out of it? Well, friends, the scripture commands us and commends this to us to both plan and to pray. 
Maybe it's that work situation. You might need to plan. You might need to update the resume. You might need to make connections. You might need to have a conversation. But as you do that, you must also pray and ask God's guidance and deliverance and rely upon him by faith. Or maybe as you're, you're stuck in this spiritual dry spell and you're, you're fearful, you're wondering, do I even know God? Friend, you should absolutely pray and cry out to God. But you know what? You should also plan to read God's word daily, to meet up with other believers who can, who can encourage you and, and, and call you out and correct you if need be and vice versa. See, some of us are more prone when we face our fears to just go straight to planning, right? The controllers who, who are, are real strategic thinkers, I'm going to get myself out of this. And praise God, God's wired you that way, but it can't only be that. You must also rely upon God by faith because you don't know what the future holds. The rest of us, some of us, and I say us because this is me, we, we are paralyzed by our fears. So we go the other way. We retreat, we, we, we're moved to inaction, and we may utter prayers, but we, we neglect strategic thinking and, and planning. And friends, here's, here's the way the Christian life works. It is both. When we plan, we must pray to make sure that it's God's plans, not primarily ours. And when we pray, we must plan to make sure that our faith is put into action. And that's what Jacob does here. And you're seeing how God is now forming this once deceiver into this useful and beautiful vessel. So he plans and he prays. And friends, we are to do likewise as we confront our fear. Now, second, God's not done with him yet. He doesn't just go straight to meet Esau. Second, what we see is God conforms us through revealing our weakness. And we see this in verse 22. Look at verse 22. It says, The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And he took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. So I want you to imagine this scene. Jacob is probably around 97 years old right now. He has just planned for this large tribute gift that he's going to send ahead to his brother, who he thinks wants to kill him. Just a side note, just show you that Jacob isn't perfect. His plan is to send everybody ahead. And he, he lays back and is like, I'm going to see how this goes. Not a good dad move or husband move, but that's, that's where he is. He's a work in progress. He sends them across, and then he is left alone, just like he was in chapter 28. And then we see this very interesting story. I'm sure you've, some of you have heard this story before in verse 24. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Okay, so this is like WrestleMania 1800 BC, right? What's, what's going on here? The first obvious question is, who is this person that Jacob is wrestling with? It's a very simple answer. This is God in human form. Now notice this progression. Even by the end of this scene, Jacob is convinced of this. We, we first see that he's called a man in verse 24. 
and they're wrestling, and it looks as if it's an even match. Right? He doesn't prevail against Jacob, but then we read that there's this sheer display of power. That this man, this representation of God, just sort of leans over, it seems like the image is, and then he just kind of flicks his hip. I don't know how it works. And his hip is dislocated. That's a sign of sheer divine power over Jacob. And then we see that this is a divine being because Jacob asks him for blessing. Jacob begins to realize that this is someone who can give blessing. And then in verse 30, as he names the place, what does he say? I have seen the face of God. I've seen God face to face. And he names the place Peniel. So this is an Old Testament God coming in human form. Sometimes he's called the angel of the Lord. Some may say this is a pre-incarnate Christ. That's probably about three sermons worth of stuff that we can't get into. But we know that this is God. And he's wrestled with Jacob. And he has crippled him. But notice also, he has him do something very specific in verse 27. He says, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Now that might seem simple, but then you say, if this is God, why would he ask Jacob his name? Here's what God is doing for Jacob here. He is having Jacob confess that he is a deceiver and a cheater. You remember that's what Jacob means? He is having him confess his name back to God out loud because that has been for so long Jacob's identity. And what God is doing in this scene is he is revealing to Jacob his complete and total weakness before God. He does it both, both physically as he wrestles with him and then dislocates his hip. And he does it spiritually as he has him confess his name as one who cheats. Now why is God doing this to him? God is revealing to him his weakness so that he can receive blessing. Alan Ross says, The Lord must on occasion cripple self-sufficient believers in order to bless them. He shows him his weakness. Lord willing, we'll sing later a verse from the book of Job. Job was one who experienced much suffering under God's sovereign prerogative. And in Job 13, 15, he says, Though he slay me, here crippling, though I experience suffering at the hands of God, I will hope in him. Later on, Job says in 23, 10, But he knows the way that I take, and when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. That's what God does with his children whom he loves. He puts them in places where their weakness is revealed so that they can then see that their ultimate hope is in God alone. And then, what does he do? He blesses Jacob and gives him a new name. Look at verse 28. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Israel means he strives or it's purposely ambiguous. It's either Jacob strives or God strives. And he didn't gain this blessing the old way, did he? 
In the old way, he cheated to get the blessing, but now he gained this blessing solely by God's grace after he recognized his weakness. And we know this because he walks away with a limp for the rest of his life because his hip has been dislocated. Friends, one of the greatest things God can do for you and I is to put us in situations where we recognize our own insufficiency. And we are forced to rely on our good and gracious God. See, Jacob needed to learn that the, the greatest problem to face is not Esau. That's not the greatest fear. The greatest problem in your life is not whatever that coming fear is. It doesn't mean it's not important, but it means it's not primary. What God needed to show Jacob and each one of us is the greatest relationship that matters. The greatest thing we should be concerned with is where we stand with God. And he shows this to Jacob. And Jacob clings to him. And Jacob is now old and he's weak and he limps away. But he is a changed man once again. J.I. Packer says the nature of Jacob's prevailing was simply that he held on to God while God weakened him. Friend, maybe God's weakening you right now. And, and you're, you're asking why questions. And you, you have no idea what's going to come. Well, as you're reassured of his presence and as you pray and as you plan, go to God and hang on. As he is weakening you, he is also blessing you. The Apostle Paul puts it so wonderfully when he reflects on this in his own life in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 7. He had experienced so many wonderful visions of God that he saw a temptation in his heart to become prideful. And here's what he says. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore... I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Not when I'm weak, God will get me out of weakness and then I'll find strength. No, in our weakness, friends, we find strength in the Lord. And this is true for Jacob, and this is what prepares him to meet his brother as he's being shaped by God. And that leads us to number three. The third way God shapes us is through relational conflict. So if you're reading this story and you're following along and you haven't heard it before, you might think, okay, Jacob's ready to be killed by his brother. He's going to die and go be with God forever. And, it, you know, that's the end of the story. But that's not what we read. Look at chapter 33, verse 1. Jacob lifted up his eyes and he looked and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front. Then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. Now listen to this. Notice what's changed. Verse 3. And he himself went on before them. You see that? Before he was like, I'm going to send everybody first. I'm afraid of this guy. Now, as he's met God, he goes first. 
bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servant drew near, the servants drew near, they and their children, and they bowed down. And Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. So we see this reunion, right? Again, he's preparing, he's planning, he prepares his family, he expects the worst. Notice only Joseph is mentioned. That's telling us about the the shift in the narrative that's going to focus on Joseph for the rest of the book. And what we see here in Jacob is a changed man. Because he has been, his vertical relationship with God has been transformed, it is changing the way his horizontal relationships with others work. You see that? This is very simple. This is Christianity in a nutshell. We see it in the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments, love God. The, second, the rest of them, the second six, love one another. Jesus sums up the law by saying love God and love one another. When you are transformed by God, it transforms the way you interact with others. And as we see this reuniting, we see, see three things happening here. First, we see this repentance for wrongdoing. Do you notice in verse 3, imagine this 97-year-old man who has deceived and sinned against his brother grievously 20 years ago. Now he's limping, and he is bowing down on his face as he walks toward his brother. Not just once, but seven times. This is a sign of true and genuine contrition and repentance in Jacob's heart. Now, as we read the Genesis story, we might think, well, shouldn't Esau be the one bowing down to Jacob? After all, the promise, Genesis 27, 29 says, let the people serve you, talking about Jacob, and the nations bow down to you, be Lord over your brothers. Now, Jacob knew that, but he doesn't come and say, listen, I'm the one with the promise, Esau. I know I wronged you, but you bow down to me. No, he is repentant, and he is humble, and he bows down before his brother. Why? Because God's mercy shapes us into repentant people when we realize we've wronged one another. That is the response. So we see this repentance for wrongdoing. And and then we see, secondly, we see this surprising, merciful reconciliation. You can't really jam-pack more emotion than is in verse 4. Look at verse 4 again. Esau ran to meet him. Now let's just stop right there. Esau was a very hairy man and he was a warrior. If I was Jacob, I would be, there'd be a moment where I'm like, I don't know how this is going to turn out. My hairy brother who wants to kill me is running at me full speed. But what happens next? He embraced him and he fell on his neck and he kissed him and they together wept. And I I love this. What's so important for us to see here is that Esau is an outsider to the promises of God. In fact, the language here, notice Esau later doesn't attribute any of his blessing to God. He just says, I have enough. Where Jacob says, I have enough because God has given it to me. We have no reason to believe that Esau is walking by faith, but this is what God does throughout the Bible. 
The outsiders are often representatives of God's grace to the insiders. And I think that's a kind grace to humble us and keep us from hypocrisy. So Esau welcomes him and they have this merciful reconciliation. And we learn that God's mercy for us, it motivates us to pursue reconciliation with others. And then we see this generous offer in verses 8 through 11. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please. If I found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I've seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. You see what, what's happening here? Jacob, the one who once stole the blessing from his brother, as he's been shaped by God and humbled by grace and seen his own weakness, now he is the one generously giving back. That's what God's grace does. Grace inwardly received always pours out into grace outwardly dispersed. And that's what's happening with Jacob. But what about verse 10? This is a strange verse. Look at verse 10 for a moment. Jacob said, No, please, if I've found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Here's what I think is happening here. What, what Jacob is saying is that because God has just the night before shown me so much grace as I wrestled with him face to face, as he's revealed to me my weakness and then blessed me, now, my brother, as I meet you, I know I deserve your judgment, but you have given me your grace and your mercy, and in your face, I see the face of God. Now, does this remind you of another story in the Bible, in the New Testament, where there's a reconciliation and a running and an embracing and a kissing and a weeping? I don't know for sure. I'm just guessing. I'll ask him when I get there. That Jesus may have had this story in mind when he told the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. Remember the son squandering his wealth from the father? Then wanting to go back just thinking, maybe I can be a servant in my, in my father's house, just maybe. But what happens when the father sees him far off? Far off? He runs to him, he embraces him, he kisses him, and they weep together. He welcomes him in. See, friends, when we see the grace of God in our own lives and reconciling us to himself, we are motivated to pursue that with others. When we reconcile and walk in loving unity with one another, what we're doing is we're displaying this loving, redeeming, fatherly nature of God in the gospel. And we see that glimpse here. So we should ask ourselves, first and foremost, have we received that reconciliation? If you're here this morning, you may not be a, a Christian, the, the important question you need to ask is, have I been reconciled to the Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ? And then, what are we to do? We are to look at the relationships around us and pursue peace and reconciliation when we wrong one another. 
And when we are sinned against, we are to respond humbly and graciously. Friends, what what relationships in your life need to be reconciled? The Apostle Paul says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And so God is shaping Jacob. And friends, he's shaping you and I as well as we confront our fears as we acknowledge our insufficiencies and and weaknesses, and as we are then humbled to pursue reconciliation with others. But as we look at each of these scenes, they're meant to point us to Jesus Christ. You see, Jacob faced Esau with fear and guilt and shame, crying out to God in prayer. But Christ faced the cross Hebrews 12 says, despising the shame that we may be assured of the presence of God who believe in him. Jacob wrestled with God to learn his weakness, but Christ, the true Israel, willingly became weak and was crushed under the weight of God's just wrath. Not because he deserved it, but because you and I did and he took it in our place. And God raised him from the dead that those who believe may have life and blessing for eternity. Esau welcomed Jacob with passionate affection, and so the father welcomes wayward deceivers and sinners and cheats like you and I, who forsake our sin and believe in him. He welcomes us with open arms into his eternal love as he shapes us and conforms us into the image of his son, Jesus. But now, O Lord, you are our father and we are the clay. You are the potter and we are the work of your hand. So let's, as we close today, walk in submission to God's sovereign work to shape us into the image of Christ. Let's pray together.